Today is Father's Day. And for many, this is a happy day. It's a time where we do our best to honor those who have loved, cared for, provided for, and set a good example for us. And fathers who are here this morning, I hope that you uh, feel loved this morning, and I do hope that uh, your family does their best to honor you as well. But for some, this day is a hard day. Some have recently lost a good father or a husband. Others perhaps had a father that was absent most of the time, or perhaps one that was less than loving to one degree or another. It's becoming increasingly common for households in America to have a father that is largely absent or absent altogether. This leaves children with little to no idea of what a godly father looks like. So this morning, and in these times, it's important that we remember that our picture of what a good father looks like should be shaped by God, who is the father of all and the perfect example of what a father should be. We don't look to earthly fathers to see what God is like. We look to God to see what earthly fathers should be like. So today I want to look at a passage that shows us right to the heart of God the Father through the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 1 depicts God as the Father of all comfort. And this morning, some in our congregation are going through very trying times, very difficult times right now. And on Father's Day, I want us to see the message that our loving Heavenly Father has for all of us and how we can walk through these difficult times where we need so much comfort. Because when parts of the body of Christ hurt, we all hurt together. So 2 Corinthians is a very different letter for Paul. When we study the the Bible, specifically the New Testament, when we start to study a letter, we want to look at the characteristics of how it's laid out and see how it either compares to or contrasts with other letters in the Bible. And when we study the Apostle Paul, this is especially the case because he has very certain characteristics that he follows in the structure of his letters. You can think about people who are like that. I think about um, Pastor Miller. Many of you uh, remember Pastor Miller by very distinctive qualities or characteristics or things that he would do. I said a few years ago when we honored him uh, for many years of service in a video that I will always remember Pastor Miller, and you can spot Pastor Miller in a parking lot when you see the 90-degree pack-in with his car because he never pulled into it just right into the parking space. He would always back in. 90 degrees. So when I saw a car that looked like his and it was backed in, I knew it was always his. And he always gave the, um, the rationale for that, that he hit fewer people when he pulled out than when he backed out. So I don't know if that was true or not, um, but that was just a way that I could determine where Pastor Miller was at a time. So when we look at the Apostle Paul and we read the letters that he writes to us, we notice very certain characteristics. And many of you know that I like to study the epistle to the Romans. Romans is a very extended, logical, reasoned argument. And it's Paul's magnum opus, his greatest letter in my opinion. 
Galatians, a similar, shorter letter, which, by the way, we'll be studying in Sunday school next quarter. That's my plug. Join us. We'd love to have you there. Uh, Galatians is a similar way, and, and the letter is laid out very similarly to Romans. Paul is known for his logical and heavily doctrinal letters in Scripture. And most of them start out the same way that 2 Corinthians does. So look at verse 1 with me and notice what he says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul identifies himself as the author. He names a co-laborer. He indicates the recipient of the letter. And then he extends a greeting, grace and peace. So far, textbook Paul. But it's at this point where 2 Corinthians begins to differ from most of Paul's other letters. You see, normally, Paul would take this moment to begin to offer up a prayer to God of thanksgiving thanking God for certain spiritual growth in the lives of those to whom he is writing. He thanked them for uh, their salvation, for their growth, for their ministry. But we notice here in 2 Corinthians that Paul doesn't do that. He also doesn't jump into a carefully reasoned argument like I would look for in Romans or in Galatians. Instead, this extremely gifted apostle opens up his heart and pours out a beautiful description of the Father. Specifically, he tells us how God's heart is postured toward us during times of trouble and sorrow. Why do you think Paul breaks from his tradition to share this picture with us? Well, it's important to realize what's happened to Paul leading up to this point of, re- of writing this letter. Paul <clears throat> has had a very rocky relationship with the Corinthian church up to this point. If you know the history a little bit, Paul goes to this area, he preaches the gospel, many people get saved, he begins to disciple them, and then a little later he writes a letter to them which God did not choose to preserve for us. It was before 1 Corinthians. Well, Paul begins to learn about certain factions in the church that are teaching things that are opposed to what Paul is teaching. And in fact, they're condemning Paul. And so Paul, hoping to head off some of the false teaching and incorrect behaviors in the church, writes off a letter that we now have and we know as 1 Corinthians, his second letter to the people in Corinth. But there's a problem. 1 Corinthians which is Paul's second letter, does not correct their behavior. And Paul must go to Corinth and make what he calls a painful visit. During this visit, he is openly insulted by a rebellious faction in the Corinthian church, and he leaves as the church continues to deteriorate. He is unable to solve the issue in person. This causes Paul to write a third letter, which we also do not have today because God did not choose to preserve that for us in the canon of Scripture. This third letter, Paul refers to as a severe letter in which he lays into the people and tells them, you're doing the wrong thing and you better change your course of action. 
So Paul, after having to write this very heavy letter to a people that he dearly loved in the faith, departs and goes to Macedonia, and while he is there, he faces a severe affliction. And he talks about that in this letter that we're going to read right now. The thing is, he doesn't tell us exactly what it is. We don't know whether he's physically attacked, whether he's imprisoned, whether he's just completely heartbroken because of his strained relationship with the Corinthian church, or whether he's become very sick. Perhaps this is an instance of that thorn in the flesh that we know from Paul in other letters. Whatever it is, Paul has faced a string of bad circumstances and he had renounced all hope. He believed, in fact, that he had received the sentence of death and he was about to die. So you can see Paul in the circumstance, surrounded by adversity, surrounded by strained relationship, perhaps sick unto death. And when this happens, he receives news from Titus that the Corinthian church has responded well to that severe letter that we no longer have. While in joy, Paul begins to take up his writing instrument and begins to pen the letter that we're reading this morning, 2 Corinthians. This is now his fourth letter to them, the one we now know as 2 Corinthians, and it's our focus this morning. So in these verses, Paul explains to us how God uses suffering to bring about his sovereign purposes. And so as we begin to read in verse 3, we're going to see, as Paul shows us, four of the purposes that the Father of all comfort has for our suffering. So let's begin reading in verse 3. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Now remember, in most of Paul's letters at this point, he would, he would choose to thank God for the spiritual progress of the recipients of the letter. He'd say, thank you God that, that, that Mark has been saved, and I thank you that he's growing in the Lord, and I'm just so thankful for him. And then he would proceed to teach, and then to apply. But he doesn't do that here. Notice that he says, praise God the Father of mercies and all comfort. The first thing that Paul came to understand is that patiently enduring suffering deepens our appreciation of God's character. That word mercies is also translated by many as compassion. In fact, if you were to look at Micah 7.19, it says, He will again have compassion on us, He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Paul is saying that in the midst of trying and troublesome times, he has found God to be characterized by compassion. God knew Paul's situation with the Corinthians. He knew the rejection that he faced. And he knew intimately the pain that Paul endured in Macedonia that had caused him to lose all hope. And just as God knew Paul's painful condition, he knows ours as well. He knows when we are rejected for sharing the gospel. 
He knows when we are betrayed by family. He knows when we are afflicted by disease and our body wears down. God knows these things. And just as God knows our condition, He surely shows His compassion on us in our frail state. But I want you to notice that second part as well. Not only is God the God of all mercies, it says that God is the Father of all comfort. Now this description of God's character needs to be explained a little bit because in our American context, we use that word comfort in a totally different way than the recipients of this letter would have understood it to be. When I think of comfort, I naturally think about the company Lazy Boy, right? Their tagline is live life comfortably. Now that kind of comfort is a whole lot different than what Paul is talking about here. God is not the God of all lazy boy recliners and easy chairs where he wants you to put up your feet and just be comfortable in life. That's not what Paul's talking about here. The situation that he is facing is much more dire and the kind of comfort that he is expecting to receive from God has nothing to do with this physical ease that we associate with the word comfort. For us, the word comfort makes us think of emotional relief and a sense of physical ease, satisfaction, you know, freedom from pain and anxiety. Many in our culture worship at the cult of self-comfortability but it lasts only for a moment and never fully satisfies. The word comfort has gone soft in our modern English. In the time of Wycliffe, which is when this word would have, of course, originally been translated, the first time, the word was closely connected with the root, which was Latin, fortis, which means brave, strong, courageous. The comfort that Paul has in mind has nothing to do with a sluggish feeling of contentment. Neither does it have an idea of what we might think of, say we're in a hospital room and we're in a lot of pain and we're hoping for medication to dull that pain, make us comfortable by removing the pain from us. That is also not what Paul is talking about here. The comfort that Paul has in mind is a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart, mind, and soul. Take it this way. God's comfort strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits so that one faces the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance that God is there for you. It's clear that Paul doesn't view God's comfort as something that took away all of his problems. Paul viewed God's comfort as his sustaining grace that spiritually strengthened him with the fortitude to face those problems. And Paul didn't think for one second that God could only handle certain kinds of problems. He didn't say, God, I'm so thankful that I'm facing this problem because I know you can handle this one. I'd be in real trouble if my friend George, if I were in his situation, because he's facing an affliction that I know you can't comfort him in. You don't have the ability to do that. No, Paul obviously didn't think that way. Notice in the scriptures here that he calls God the father of all comfort. That word all translated is a comprehensive sense, meaning he is the father who with his limitless compassion provides his people with never-failing comfort of every variety. 
meaning you have a problem today and you need comfort, God has that comfort. There's not such a problem or trouble or affliction that we can face that God does not have the comfort to strengthen us to endure through that trial. Paul believed that patiently enduring suffering deepens our appreciation of God's character. He had found God to be always compassionate and had comforted him through every kind of trial. And so we will find God to be always compassionate when we turn to him during those troubles and look for his mercy and comfort. Notice that Paul shares another purpose for suffering in verse 4. It says, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This verse gives a very clear instructive for all believers who are experiencing suffering. Paul says that God comforts us in our afflictions so that, and that very word construction means for the purpose that, what? That we can comfort others. Now let's just be honest. To the ordinary world around us and to our, our natural minds, this does not seem to make sense. When we are facing affliction and trials and trouble, we think we need somebody to comfort us. I've done my time. I've helped other people at other times. I mean, what do you expect from me? I'm going through a tough time. And yet Paul is saying that God doesn't comfort us so that we will be comfortable. He comforts us so that we will be comforters. So that we will not sit back and say, I've received God's comfort. Now, hey, you know, you go ahead and see God's comfort on your own. I had to do it by myself, so you have to do it by yourself as well. Paul here isn't trying to make light of our suffering either. In fact, on the contrary, Paul is trying to show us that God's plan in using suffering is to equip us for ministry. God allows experiences of suffering in our lives that will give us opportunities to minister grace to those who are suffering. And so experiencing God's comfort in our suffering encourages and equips us to bring his comfort to those experiencing any type of suffering. Do you notice how Paul doesn't say that we have to experience the exact same kind of trial that others are going through in order to comfort them through that trial as well? In fact, it seems like he says the opposite. Look back at verse 4 again. It says, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Meaning not just that you will turn and say, I have been comforted in this particular affliction, now just let me only look for people who have faced what I've faced and try to comfort them. No, Paul is saying, if you've been a channel, a recipient of my comfort and grace, now you are to be a channel through which I give you my grace that you can funnel to others who are going through any kind of affliction. It's the same kind of word that talked about earlier, that God is the God who can comfort you in all of your afflictions, so likewise he gives you the ability through recipients of his comfort to comfort others who are going through any type of suffering. Notice how Paul puts it in verses 6 and 7. 
He says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. These are some remarkable verses. Paul is saying that his own sufferings serve as an opportunity to comfort other Christians in their afflictions. Specifically, he's talking to the Corinthian believers, but then later on to other believers. And that when he is comforted, he then funnels that comfort from God to them as they also patiently learn to endure suffering. I'll have to say, in this church, one of the most encouraging ministries that I have witnessed in the time that I've been here is sometimes being at the bedside of those who are suffering greatly. Saints who have lived a long time on the earth and then in their later years are suffering from the ravages and pain that sin creates in our bodies because of the fall. And they're near the point where they're going home and yet they're not complaining about how they feel. They're saying, trust God, he's always been good to me. Trust God, he can comfort you. That kind of ministry is powerful. And so if you think there's ever a time in your life where you say, you know what, my ministry is through, I really don't have any abilities, I served my time earlier, God has opportunities for us to minister in every stage and age of our lives. And the way that we approach suffering is a tremendous testimony to the other believers in our church who are witnessing you as well. And when you show that God is enough, that God is all that you need, and your brothers and sisters in Christ witness you, they're edified and God is glorified. That is a powerful ministry. And Paul says this is his ministry to the Corinthians in their afflictions. One commentator puts it this way, We also experience God's comfort by caring for others even when we are in the midst of suffering. Sometimes the sudden onslaught of affliction may tempt one to retreat into a shell, to shut oneself off from others. The suffering, however, then becomes purposeless. Those who focus only on themselves are the most miserable of people. The persons who turn their pain to helping others can redirect and conquer that pain. Paul knew how to encourage because he knew what it was like to be discouraged. He knew how to comfort because he knew what it was like to be unbearably crushed. He knew how to console others because he knew what it was like to be at the end of his tether. The difference is that he knows who holds the other end of the tether. God. He set his hope on God who delivered Christ Jesus from the death and has faithfully delivered him in the past and will deliver him in the future. He shared this hope with others. Brothers and sisters, as we focus on serving others this year, don't forget to serve others in the body of Christ who are hurting in their suffering by being channels of God's grace to them. Offer to pray for those who are hurting. Do it once, or perhaps do it on a regular basis. Write a card of encouragement for those who are facing trials of crushing weight. God uses these as channels of his grace to those who need comfort.
And I have to say, those who have already been writing letters of encouragement have done that in abundant ways, which you probably don't even understand to this degree. It's a fantastic ministry of serving others in the body of Christ. Share with someone who feels defeated how though you may never face what they are facing, and you may never know the kind of pain that they feel, God has strengthened you in your trials and you want to bless them in any way that you can. These are ways that we can be channels of his grace. Let's look at the third purpose that Paul gives for our suffering in verse 5. He says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Paul wants us to realize that in Christ our suffering is always overwhelmed by God's comfort. Now when these situations occur in the text, when Paul says things like this, it's good to, to point out for those math nerds that Paul is setting up a bit of a math equation here in the way that he phrases this. The verb that's translated abundantly, and obviously it's not a verb in the English text, but in the original text, it belongs to a family of words that in a commercial context expresses profit or surplus. In describing his sufferings of Christ, Paul pictures a balance sheet with two columns. Sufferings of Christ on one side versus comfort through Christ on the other side. Ministering in this present evil age brings him a surplus of suffering on one side. And it becomes almost unbearable. But Paul says that the consolation column on this side also shows a surplus and it more than balances the suffering. Paul's hope of our final deliverance melts the pain away in the same way that he describes in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, when he says a very similar thing, and he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed with us. What a tremendous, what a tremendous truth to claim there. This is the very same Paul that faces lashings many times over. A man who is left for dead perhaps even dies. A man who many times has been shipwrecked. A man who has had to go on journeys. And when he says journeys, he doesn't mean hop in the car and like, you know, take the interstate, which is very easy to get on. We're talking about a guy who's traveling across the ancient world destroying his body because there isn't a clear path and oftentimes being beaten for it. Paul was no sissy. Paul had faced a lot of suffering and yet Paul says, all the sufferings that I have faced on this side of the equation don't even compare when it comes to the glory that's going to be revealed in me. It doesn't even measure up. It's like we're talking about this insignificant amount. And honestly, in this current life, he's saying, when I look at this, this is not an insignificant amount. This seems overwhelming, unbearable. I don't know how I'm going to face through this. But when I remember to take my eyes off the side of the equation and I go over here and I look at the glories to be revealed in me, when Christ says, I'm going to be glorified just as he's glorified, that I'm going to receive a new body that never hurts again, 
that when I'm with and in the presence of God above, there will never be suffering. There will never be any pain or crying or tears. There will never be any kind of heartbreak. He says, when I face that, when I look at that, I recognize my suffering means nothing. It can't even be compared. What a glorious truth. Notice that when we face the sufferings of a sinful world, we identify with Christ in this verse, who also suffered heartbreak, betrayal, attack, and ultimately murder. As Christ faced all these things and persevered, so we can face these things and be more than conquerors through him that loved us, Jesus Christ himself. In Christ, our suffering is always overwhelmed by God's comfort. But I want us to turn to look at the final purpose for suffering that Paul gives here in 2 Corinthians 1. Notice that Paul now shifts in verse 8 from his description of just general sufferings to tell the Corinthians of his personal experience of suffering. Remember at the beginning I was trying to give you a little bit of backstory of what was going on before he wrote this letter to the Corinthians. And he begins to give us some insight as to what he was facing. Notice he says in verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. He's talking about his excursion in Macedonia where he's ministering to the churches. He says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. This is the Apostle Paul, a guy who was strong, filled with the Spirit, declaring the truths of the gospel, saying that nothing can stand against us if God is for us. And yet he says he was so afflicted that he despaired of life itself. Indeed, he says at the end of verse 8, indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now we don't know if he was literally condemned to die or if he felt like because of his suffering he was going to die. But that's really inconsequential. In fact, I believe that Paul doesn't tell us exactly what he's going through so that we don't think, well, that's what Paul went through, but I'm going through this, and it's so much different. In fact, if Paul just tells us, I'm going through an intense, deep period of suffering, it helps us, I think, identify with him in a greater detail. But what does Paul say when he was to the point where he thought he was going to die? What does he point to as a purpose for so much pain? Look at the rest of verse 9. He says, But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Brothers and sisters, our pain is not without purpose. Our troubles do not come to simply beat us down until we can no longer go any further. Paul is a man who's weighed down with so much trouble, he's to the point where he thinks he's going to die. And when he looks back on the purpose for that pain, he says that pain broke down his altar of self-dependence and drove him to depend on God alone. Brothers and sisters, the final purpose that Paul gives here for suffering is that it drives us to trust God alone. Just as God delivered Paul in that particular situation, he says he'll do so again in the future. 
Notice Paul's words of confidence in verse 10. He said, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. Paul, I thought you were through this trial. I thought it was over. I thought your suffering was done. Well, he doesn't tell us what suffering he was going through, so it's very likely, it's very possible, that that particular suffering is over. He's done with it. God led him through. He gave him the comfort that he needed. But yet, Paul says very clearly, he expects that he's going to have more suffering. In fact, it may even be greater suffering. Because he talks about the deadly peril that he was delivered from and that he will be delivered from. Meaning he knows it's coming again. And look, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we think, I'm done with this trial, the first thing we think about is, I never want to face this again. I never want to be in the midst of trouble. I never want to be in such a trial that that makes me think I'm going to die again. And yet Paul doesn't say, and when he delivers me again, I'm going to say, would you please cut it out and stop putting me in the pressure cooker? Paul never says that. Instead, he says what? He will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul recognized God's hand as the father of all comfort in delivering him from the trial in the first place. And he also recognized that just as he's going to face more trials in the future, God's comfort is going to be far and abounding greater than all of the afflictions that he will face in the future. And he will deliver us again. He trusts in the God who raises the dead. And brothers and sisters, as we look at a passage like this, and as we're in the middle of suffering, and it seems like it's really powerful, and there's just no way that God's going to get us out of us, remember that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead, the same God who has the power to bring life from someone who is dead, is the same God who works in you to comfort you in the midst of trouble. And that same power is at work in us when we face it. So today is Father's Day. Not your normal Father's Day message. Didn't necessarily perhaps give you soft words, but I'm I'm hoping that they're encouraging words. And so I have a challenge for you, fathers. Are you emulating your Heavenly Father by being a comforter to those who are facing adversity? Are you yielded to be a channel of His grace to those who are hurting? Or to the rest of us, are we allowing our troubles to be wasted? Do we neglect the comfort provided to us from the Father of all comfort, failing to recognize His character of compassion in our lives? Do you believe that God's comfort always outweighs our suffering? And finally, will we allow our suffering to drive us to trust in God alone and not rely on the unsteady crutch of our own self-reliance? I pray that this Father's Day, we will look to the Father of all comfort and say, God, if I'm going through a trial or trouble, would you please show me your compassionate character? Would you please show me how I can be a channel of your grace to others? Would you show me how I can serve others in the body of Christ who are going through troubles and trials? 
And most of all, God, would you cause me not to rely on myself? Cause me not to think, I'll get through this. It's fine, I'll muscle through. But instead to say, no, God, I'm never going to make it through this unless I turn and rely on you alone and give you all the glory for getting me through it. So we think about those things. Let's close together in prayer. God, I do thank you that you are the God of comfort. You are the Father of compassionate mercies that are new every single morning. You are the God who, as we look into your word, presents to us on a beautiful table the delicacies of your truths that assure us that you are always with us. That though things seem bleak and we're facing some dark and cold nights, that you are never absent. You are never like some earthly fathers who aren't there. Father, you're always there. You're always with us. You've promised that and you've proven it over and over again. Father, I pray that you would use these words that Paul has written to the Corinthians to encourage us. And not only to comfort us, but encourage others who are going through these kinds of things. Perhaps foreign to us, but not foreign to you. You know all things, Father, so we entrust these things to your hands. We pray that you would comfort us and strengthen us and that you'd make us more and more like you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.